Salem Law Review's podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with symposium guests. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Gabrielle Monero, the Editor-in-Chief of the New England Law Review and the host of today's podcast. I'm thrilled to be here tonight with Attorney Joel Berger to discuss his recent publication on the New England Law Review Forum titled, Reforming the NYPD and its Enablers Who Thwart Reform. Attorney Joel Berger is a veteran civil rights attorney with decades of experience representing underprivileged defendants in unpopular cases throughout New York City. Attorney Berger was the first director of the New York City Legal Aid Society Prisoners' Rights Project and later represented individuals on death row before the United States Supreme Court and the United States Courts of Appeals as an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Attorney Berger spent years as an executive with the New York City Law Department, which contributed in large part to his dedication to fighting police and prosecutorial misconduct through his private practice. Attorney Berger, thank you for being with us here today and for taking the time to share your experience and your expertise with us. Thank you, Bree. Glad to be here. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences and your background as an attorney in New York City and what sort of initially led you down the path that you found yourself on? Sure. Um, for the first, excuse me, for the first maybe... 20, 25 years of my career, I, I really didn't have much to do with police at all. I was litigating prisoners' rights and then defending people on death row. I hadn't paid that much attention to the police. Um, but then uh, early in my uh, tenure at the uh, executive of the city law department, I was asked to be the individual who would sort of monitor, uh, not necessarily defend, uh, but monitor the police. Uh, uh, and through that, in that position, uh, this occurred uh, really sort of at the beginning of the Dinkins administration, uh, I began paying attention to the NYPD, and the more I saw, the more I was very troubled. Uh, I, I, I got access to a lot of confidential documents that are not, get, are not seen by the public, uh, not even seen by plaintiff's counsel in civil rights cases. Uh, or so seen only a bunch of protective orders uh, never made public. And uh, the more I saw, the more disturbed I became. Uh, the best way I could describe the NYPD back in those days uh, and still today would be to, to ask our, uh, any of our listeners, I'm sure there are many out there, who have seen the movie Serpico. Uh, now, some things have changed. Uh, the police are not on the take uh, the way they were in the days of the Serpico scandals, uh, except for occasionally some narcotics officers. Uh, that's been cleaned up. But there's another thread that runs throughout the movie that is, has never really changed in 50 years' time, and that is the insularity and resistance to transparency, the tendency to always circle the wagons prevent outside scrutiny, and keep everything in-house. Uh, that has not changed at all, and in fact, in many respects, it has gotten worse. Uh, it started getting worse under Giuliani. It got much worse under uh, Bloomberg uh, during the Stop and Frisk uh, episode. Uh, and unfortunately, it's got, got even worse under de Blasio, our current mayor, who initially ran on a campaign of police reform, but has pretty much turned his back on almost everything other than stop and frisk uh, that he, he, uh, he ran on. Uh, and that is very disturbing because, you know, police officers have such great power. Uh, you know, they can arrest you and, uh, uh, and, and uh, until you get to see a judge, uh, you're, you're imprisoned. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, you have to go back to court several times before the case gets dismissed. Uh, they can cause you, you know, a tremendous amount of, uh, of harm. And yet, 
uh, in New York, historically, police have been allowed more, uh, 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 more of an ability to cover up their misdeeds. There's been less transparency and less ability to discipline them than virtually any other agency of city government, even though no other municipal employee has as much power over the citizenry as a New York City police officer. And that, that, that just makes no sense at all. Of all people, the police should be the ones who are most carefully scrutinized. Absolutely. So that actually leads rather nicely into my next question, um, which turning to, to your article that was just recently published on the New England Law Review Forum, you offer a series of recommendations that could truly revolutionize the, the NYPD as an organization and, and also just the way policing is practiced uh, in New York City. And in the introduction to your article, you, you sort of initially contextualize uh, many of your recommendations by touching on the current movement uh, overtaking the nation in, in the wake of, of the murder of George Floyd. And to quote your words, you, you state, um, it is vital that close attention be paid to systematic government suppression of belief misbehavior. And, and you also touch later on about, you know, the phrase, this fabled blue wall of silence. And I think many of our listeners might be sort of unfamiliar with with the extent of sort of not just rampant police misconduct uh, in an individual sense, um, but but about how sort of different government systems and players work together to to evade um, you know true police accountability. So That's could you correct. talk? Virtually, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, please. Just sort well, of. Uh, virtually the entire city government participates in uh, one way or another in. Uh, covering up police misconduct or weakening any outside scrutiny of it. Uh, and, you know, that is extremely harmful. People, you know, I think most people uh, view the term blue wall of silence as just police officers uh, being reluctant to speak out against each other uh, or their unions uh, participating in covering things up. It's actually much worse than that. There's an institutional wall of silence, uh, an institutional wall of silence that pervades city government and involves many city agencies that are supposed to be paying some attention, uh, but in reality don't. Uh, one uh, place that I, I, I mentioned at the very beginning of the article uh, is the whole uh, system of discipline in police officers. Uh, the NYPD is the only agency of city government that gets to adjudicate its own uh, disciplinary uh, issues. Uh, every other agency of city government, including uh, uh, the other uniformed services, fire, sanitation, corrections, uh, the uh, disciplinary matters are tried before an independent tribunal a citywide agency called the Office uh, of Trials and Hearings. Uh, and it's, its judges are appointed to lengthy terms and they do not serve at the pleasure of any of the commissioners. Uh, and uh, they're basically independent. The NYPD years ago uh, got the state legislature to pass a bill saying that in the case of police, uh, it all has to be before uh, either the commissioner or someone who is an employee of the commissioner. Uh, that's a very bad bill. It actually is a very bad law. It actually has been on the books for uh, almost 80 years. Uh, right now, there's an effort in the New York State Legislature to repeal it, but the legislature is in a special session this summer, uh, and uh, it really needs to be repealed. Uh, basically, the Office of Trials and Hearings should adjudicate the cases, and its decisions should be final. Uh, there was a time when uh, I believe that maybe we could at least let the commissioner have the final say after reviewing the, uh, the, the hearing before oath. But the last several commissioners have been so weak in disciplining officers that I no longer have any faith in 
their ability to uh, to, to to do justice. Uh, they're almost always looking the other way. They're watering down recommendations of um, uh, of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which has no power other than to recommend. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, even the worst police officers who have had 10, 20, 30 complaints against them, who may have cost the city hundreds of thousands of dollars in numerous lawsuits, uh, they are not disciplined at all. In fact, they're frequently promoted. Uh, and uh, at, at most, occasionally, one of them gets a slap on the wrist with the takeaway of communication days. Uh, and, you know, over things for which they should be fired. Mm. It just makes no, it makes no sense at all. And so one of the sort of common, you know, refrains regarding uh, policing is, you know, the issue is really just a few bad apples. And if we can rid departments of a few bad apples, the issues will sort of resolve themselves. So what would your response be to that sort of view of, of policing and police departments? You know, uh, it's more than a few bad apples, uh, but the, the bad apples, uh, I'm perfectly willing to say, are, are not necessarily a majority of police officers. Uh, most police officers in New York are decent, hardworking men and women uh, who take their job seriously and do a very difficult and dangerous job to not nearly enough pay. Uh, and uh, the, the problem is that uh, they, they're, they're really a sort of a brotherhood or sisterhood amongst them, which precludes them from ever speaking out against uh, other officers, no matter uh, how badly uh, they see, what they, no matter what they see a fellow officer doing that they, that they know is wrong. Uh, so, uh, what the police department uh, and, and even the good officers don't understand is they're giving the police department a bad name in the community. That you know, next time uh, they they begin wondering why do they hate us so much? Well, if you would really do what's necessary to root out the bad apples, uh, uh, perhaps the police department would have a better. Uh, reputation amongst the public, uh, but that doesn't happen. So even if it's a minority of officers, the public understandably uh, sees them as the entire police department, and in a sense they are, in the sense that the police department doesn't do anything about them, and that affects the attitudes of the entire public. Uh, and it isn't only just uh, bad apples, because there are things that come from the very top as well. Take, for example, the stop and frisk and a reign of terror that went on in New York in, in the Bloomberg uh, years. Uh, that came right from the top. That came from the, the police commissioner, Raymond Kelly, who was commissioner for all 12 years of Bloomberg. And although Bloomberg has apologized and has said it was wrong, uh, whatever his motives may have been for saying that. Kelly has never said that he thinks it was wrong. Uh, and uh, worse yet, the entire New York City Law Department rallied around Kelly uh, in vigorously fighting uh, the effort to, in the federal courts, to stand, stop, and frisk, and uh, even making scarless attacks upon the integrity of Judge Shemlin, who wrote the opinion. Uh, and well, I guess that brings me to, to, to another point, uh, which is that the really worst enabler of the NYPD uh, in the entire city is the city's law department. Uh, uh, they vociferously defend every cop accused of wrongdoing. They've been rebuked and even sanctioned several times for withholding crucial discovery evidence. Uh, on one or two occasions, even uh, acquiescing in destruction of, of the crucial evidence. Uh, and uh, again, this is a trend that has actually gotten much worse uh, under de Blasio. Uh, the division that handles police misconduct cases is riddled with hardliners who defended stop and frisk, who opposed the, uh, the uh, 
settlement of the infamous Central Park Five case. And the corporation councils themselves in recent years have done absolutely nothing about it. In fact, the, they, they sort of behave uh, towards the mayor the way you know, Attorney General uh, Barr behaves towards Trump, which is, you know, my job is not to be an independent attorney general for the people of the city. My job is to defend my, the boss who appointed me. And that, that wasn't always the case back when I was at the law department that Certainly in my early years there, that was not the case, but it has changed, and it is really uh, the worst, uh, one of the worst things that goes on, because when someone uh, brings a lawsuit, they usually bring lawsuits because they have no faith in the disciplinary system to do anything about what, what happened, uh, they, they are uh, brutalized a second time by nasty lawyers who will pull any trick in the book to try to derail the lawsuit, delay the lawsuit, uh, and just make your life miserable a second time around. And uh, I'm just astonished that that continues to go on, even uh, under what was supposed to be a more liberal mayor and a more liberal corporation councils. Uh, it really needs to change. Uh, the whole, that office needs a complete shaking up. Uh, uh, until uh, about uh, 20 years ago, the cases were handled by lawyers from all over the office uh, who didn't have any special relationships with the police. And then uh, Giuliani's second corporation council created a special unit designed solely to defend the police uh, and corrections. And that unit is totally out of control and just, you know, they, they make life miserable for people who... While you were speaking, it, it made me wonder, you know, what, and, and perhaps that's it, the, the sort of development of this of this new group, but, but, you know, what would you point to over the past, you know, several couple of decades that, that has really created a change in the law department from when you were working there versus the way it, it sort of is operating now? Uh, I think it's mostly politics that... When I first came to the Law Department, it was actually in the last couple of years of the Koch administration, we had two highly respected corporation councils. First, uh, uh, Fritz Schwartz and then Peter Zimroth. Uh, Zimroth is now the special monitor in the Stop and Frisk litigation. Uh, and uh, they were people of real integrity and, and honesty who they viewed themselves as lawyers, not for individual city employees or city agencies or commissioners, but for the people of the city. It's even in the city charter that the Corporation Council represents the people of the city, uh, and not just uh, the city employees and agencies and commissioners. Uh, and unfortunately, that uh, after they left office, uh, that began to erode, and mayors began to... Uh, uh, clamping down on their corporation councils and saying, hey, you know, you work for me and you're going to do what I tell you to do. And unfortunately, every corporation council since has uh, bowed uh, to that pressure. Uh, and like I say, they really behave more like the way Bill Barr behaves towards Trump these days. Uh, it's, uh, it, what attracted me to the place was the, the, the previous ethos that we only represent all the people and not just uh, uh, individual uh, employees. Uh, he, you know, this, uh, back when I was there, the corporation council's office often uh, was the eyes and ears of the mayor telling him things that were going wrong in their departments. Uh, and Mayor Koch, to his credit, and I, I wasn't a big fan of his in a lot of ways, but at least he understood that, that because so much, so many city uh, policies wind up in court, that he needed an alternative voice, uh, and he shouldn't be hearing just from his commissioners, but he should be hearing from the lawyers uh, who should have an independent voice and tell them things that were wrong and that needed to be changed. Uh, and that's, that enabled people like me to work from within to try to effectuate change. Uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but I don't mean to say that the law department alone is, is guilty. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, I mentioned the Serpico scandal. Fifty years ago, the, uh, 
organization that was set up to, to study what had happened in the Serpico scandals recommended uh, significantly strengthening disciplinary penalties, uh, including fines up to $25,000, suspension without pay for a year. Uh, and they said that, and they even said this is the single most important problem in discipline of police officers. Uh, that bill has been around, that proposal has been around for 50 years, and even Giuliani supported it in his first term, uh, and the city council has never passed it. Uh, the reason is that the union see it as some kind of existential threat, and uh, the, the council members have, have, have given into it. Uh, then we have the city controller that has the power to uh, approve or disapprove of every settlement of a lawsuit. Uh, and back when I was there, the, uh, the city controller uh, in the early 90s uh, tried to uh, exercise that power and say, I won't approve this lawsuit unless you, the NYPD, do something about this bad officer. Uh, there was enormous pushback against that, and uh, it didn't succeed, and every controller since then has absolutely refused to do uh, what uh, that further that uh, controller, her name was Elizabeth Halston, you know, tried to do. Uh, so the loss, you know, routinely huge settlements are uh, are approved. Of course, the settlements always say we have been no wrongdoing. You know, that's uh, typical. Uh, and you know, the the, the uh, plaintiffs receive somebody. The lawyers receive this uh, somebody, uh, uh, and nothing is done to the officer. While you were speaking, it, it made me wonder, you know, what, and, and perhaps that's it, the, the sort of development of this of this new group, but, but, you know, what would you point to over the past, you know, several couple of decades that, that has really created a change in the law department from when you were working there versus the way it, it sort of is operating now? Uh, I think it's mostly politics that... When I first came to the Law Department, it was actually in the last couple of years of the Koch administration, we had two highly respected corporation councils. First, uh, uh, Fritz Schwartz and then Peter Zimrath. Uh, Zimrath is now the special monitor in the Stop and Frisk litigation. Uh, and uh, they were people of real integrity and, and honesty who they viewed themselves as lawyers, not for individual city employees or city agencies or commissioners, but for the people of the city. It's even in the city charter that the Corporation Council represents the people of the city, uh, and not just uh, city employees and agencies and commissioners. Uh, and unfortunately, that uh, after they left office, uh, that began to erode, and mayors began uh, uh, clamping down on their corporation councils and saying, hey, you know, you work for me and you're going to do what I tell you to do. And unfortunately, every corporation council since has uh, bowed uh, to that pressure. Uh, and like I say, they really behave more like the way Bill Barr behaves towards Trump these days. Uh, it's... What attracted me to the place was the, the, the previous ethos that we, you know, we represent all the people and not just uh, uh, individual uh, employees. Uh, the, you know, this, uh, back when I was there, the Corporation Council's office often uh, was the eyes and ears of the mayor telling him things that were going wrong in their departments. Uh, and Mayor Koch, to his credit, and I, I wasn't a big fan of his in a lot of ways, but at least he understood that, that because so much, so many city uh, policies wind up in court, that he needed an alternative voice, uh, and he shouldn't be hearing just from his commissioners, but he should be hearing from the lawyers uh, who should have an independent voice and tell them things that were wrong and that needed to be changed. Uh, and that's, that enabled people like me to work from within to try to effectuate change. Uh, that just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but I don't mean to say that the law department alone is, is guilty. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, I mentioned the Serpico scandal. Fifty years ago, the, uh, the commission that was set up to, to study what had happened in the Serpico scandals recommended uh, significantly strengthening discipline.
disciplinary penalties, uh, including fines up to $25,000, suspension without pay for a year. Uh, and they said that, and they even said this is the single most important problem in discipline of police officers. Uh, that bill has been around, that proposal has been around for 50 years, and even Giuliani supported it in his first term, uh, and the city council has never passed it. Uh, the reason is that the unions see it as some kind of existential threat, and uh, the, the council members have, have, have given into it. Uh, then we have the city controller that has the power to uh, approve or disapprove of every settlement of a lawsuit. Uh, and back when I was there, the, uh, the city controller uh, in the early 90s uh, tried to uh, exercise that power and say, I won't approve this lawsuit unless you, the NYPD, do something about this bad officer. Uh, there was enormous pushback against that, and uh, it didn't succeed, and every controller since then has absolutely refused to do uh, what uh, that first, uh, that uh, controller, her name was Elizabeth Holston, you know, tried to do. Uh, so the loss, you know, routinely, huge settlements are, um, are approved. Of course, the settlements always say we have been no wrongdoing, you know, that's... Uh, typical uh, and you know, the the, the uh, plaintiffs receive somebody, the lawyers receive this, uh, somebody, uh, uh, and nothing is done to the officer. Yeah, you know, they talk about there's not a lot of talk about uh, ending or changing qualified immunity, which would be good and it would certainly improve uh, the, the uh, uh, chances of winning the lawsuits. But unless the city does something about the officers who are sued, you know, pays attention to the lawsuits as a barometer of something that's going wrong, instead of just trying to settle them for the smallest amount possible and shove it all under the rug and do nothing to the officer, you know, uh, the lawsuits alone aren't going to change things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throughout your, your piece, you, you sort of touch in various ways on on the ways that both, you know, individual officers and the, the departments themselves are sort of insulated from from real scrutiny and, and from real sort of penalties. Um, and, and I noticed that, that uh, some of your recommendations um, use the word, you know, abolish rather than reform. So you suggest, you know, abolishing the NYPD trial room and abolishing the special federal litigation division and I think especially especially recently over the past few months you know there's a there's a lot of talk about um or 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 there's a there's a pretty visceral response to words like abolish so I'm curious about about um your proposal to abolish these these um you know the NYPD trial room or the the special federal litigation division rather than reform and and why you think you know some things need to be abolished other things need to uh, I certainly am not in favor of abolishing the police, and I think the uh, the phrase defunding the police has <clears throat> was poorly chosen because it many people see it as the equivalent of abolishing the police, and of course that's not really what it was intended to mean. It was intended to mean that the police should not be doing uh, some uh, things that they currently are, are, are charged with doing, which are really more social work, uh, such as um, uh, such as being school monitors or responding to uh, uh, to incidents of, of uh, mentally disturbed people, you know, stuff stuff like that. Uh, most of these, uh, uh, I mean, certainly in the schools, it, it, it's just kids. In the, in the case of mentally disturbed people, it's very rare that uh, one of those folks is actually armed and, and dangerous. Uh, and yet, a lot of the worst incidents seem to occur uh, when when uh, police respond to, to mental health situations. So some things need to be abolished, and other things uh, need to be uh, reformed. Uh, the um, like one, one thing, for example, that needs to be reformed is the whole process of uh, getting after cops who routinely lie uh, in court in hearings or in accusatory instruments. Uh, and this is where another enabler of the police comes into play, the, uh, the city's district attorneys. They 
routinely dismiss cases where they know that the officer is not telling the truth in the accusatory instrument. But they virtually never prosecute those officers, even though filing a false official instrument is a felony for which conviction for which leads to automatic dismissal under state law. They look the other way because they want to maintain a good relationship with uh, uh, with the police. And incidentally, the, uh, for more than 20 years, the police department has had a rule uh, in the patrol guides saying that absent exceptional circumstances, if you make a false official statement, you're going to be fired. And every study of the uh, implementation of that rule over the last 20 years has established that there is no implementation of it. Uh, that, in fact, uh, they totally uh, look the other way. Uh, and uh, I mean, I had one case, I, I didn't mention it in the article because it was uh, taking a little too much time to explain. I had a case in which um, a totally innocent guy, uh, uh, upper middle class homeowner, uh, uh, retired uh, 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 budget analyst for a city agency, was arrested for supposedly pickpocketing on the subway. And uh, the person he supposedly pickpocketed, who was a complete stranger to him, these people did not know each other at all, came forward and said, this officer is making the whole thing up. I told him nothing happened. I told him I never saw this guy anywhere near me. He's making the whole thing up. It's, it's, it's absurd. Uh, uh, this, this officer is lying and you should do something about it. And this uh, 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 alleged complainant had no criminal record, no history of anti-police activity, uh, employed as a manager in a store, uh, a, a, a totally upright stand, upset standing citizen. And you know, we wrote letter after letter with documents to the Manhattan DA's office saying, if ever there were a case where you should go after an officer for making a false official statement, this is it. They wouldn't do it. They absolutely refused. Unless they catch a cop on video stealing drugs or something like that, they will not prosecute him. And that's, that's terrible. That needs to be reformed when we need to have district attorneys who are prepared to really crack down on officers who lie. And we need police commissioners who are willing to uh, follow through on the patrol guide's uh, provision and fire cops who lie. And if you did that a few times, it would really make a difference. Uh, and it would be a warning to other police officers. You can't just make stuff up uh, for the purpose of um, you know, increasing your arrest statistics. Uh, or in the, the case I just mentioned, uh, the arrest was made just before the guy was about to go off duty. And he uh, was able to run up a great deal of overtime. Uh, which there's actually a term for it in the police department called collars for dollars, uh, making uh, making things up at the end of your tour, your tour so that you can get, uh, you know, uh, not only improve, improve your arrest statistics, but get more uh, overtime. Uh, you know, that, that needs to be reformed. I mean, you know, to abolish cops making arrests for people who are really guilty. But you, you can't have them making up cases to just you know, in order to uh, uh, in order to prove the statistics or make a little overtime, and then, then you have to, so the DAs are, are, are really very much responsible. Uh, the criminal court judges are also responsible too because they often sign these no-knock search warrants based on the flimsiest, the most unverified claims of informants who themselves are criminals, drug addicts, and uh, often lie to curry favor with the police. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, George Floyd, but of course there's also Breonna Taylor uh, mm -hmm. in, in Louisville. Uh, believe me, New York City could easily have a Breonna Taylor incident. Uh, I have represented numerous uh, victims of no-knock raids where the police didn't have the faintest idea who even lived in the apartment. An informant had just pointed out the particular apartment and it turned out that he'd gotten the drugs from somewhere else and it wasn't that apartment. Uh, I mean, they come storming in with guns, pointed at people, yelling and screaming and making people get down on the floor and handcuffing them while they go through the whole apartment. 
implement the reforms that were promised but never really followed through on 20 years ago. And be darn careful before you do that kind of a life-threatening, dangerous intrusion into someone's home. Uh, you've got to be absolutely... And by the way, here also, uh, the courts have not been so bad. The federal courts have said that uh, material omissions uh, uh, or also basically to get a warrant deprive the officer of qualified immunity. And the New York State Law Department just ignores that and argues in every case that, oh, well, well once you have a warrant, that's it. It's all over. You know, qualified immunity automatically attaches. Uh, and sure, the judges uh, uh, deny those requests, but you know, time is taken up with briefing, uh, attorney hours are wasted, uh, plaintiffs are made to, 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 to wait, and you know, it's, it's part of just the process of wearing people down. So we, we've spoken a bit in the past, and, and you really just touched on it a moment ago, how you know there, there seem to be these moments of um, these highly publicized stories of police misconduct. And, and you know as a result, there's a lot of momentum for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. And then you know we sort of return to this business as usual. Um, but we spoke sort of about the current moment and how it, it feels uh, in many ways different than it has in the past. Um, you know, it, there seems to be a different reaction uh, and maybe a more widespread reaction throughout the nation uh, in the wake of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor in a way that, that wasn't quite the same with, with Eric Garner and with, and with Mike Brown and, and with Tamir Rice. So I'm just curious, um, you know, what about this moment sort of feels different to you? And, and if you think there's maybe an avenue for change in this moment that, that perhaps hasn't existed in the past or, or that, you know, sort of halted reform efforts in the past where, where it might I, I be possible now. So. I certainly hope so. There's a part of me, uh, having been at this for so many years, that at times is cynical and discouraged and thinks that maybe this will blow over just like all the others did. Uh, but there's also a part of me that says, yes, this does feel different. Uh, and, you know, frankly, people like myself, you know, the civil rights lawyers, the policy experts, even some of the more progressive office holders, uh, even some of the um, older generation of activists like Al Sharpton, uh, frankly, uh, we have not succeeded uh, because the police have managed to wait things out each time and, uh, uh, and, and, and then go back to business as usual. So frankly, um, I look to these people in the streets uh, as you know, the best hope we have of forcing real change. For, uh, instead of only cosmetic change or only temporary change that doesn't last. Uh, these are the people who are going to bring about real change if there is to be real change. Uh, they've got to continue to put political pressure on the police. I mean, uh, just uh, uh, last month, the New York State Legislature finally, after decades of inaction, uh, inaction, uh, repealed the statute that allowed the police to uh, keep all the disciplinary proceedings secret. And you know, even in the previous year's session where the Democrats were in control, that bill never even saw the light of the day. But because of the protests this time around, uh, the uh, pressure was so great that they, they had no choice. Uh, and I'd like to see that happen with a number of other measures as well, such as the one that's pending right now to abolish the NYPD trial room. Uh, we really have got to... Uh, uh, the, the, the folks who are out there in the streets are our, our last best hope uh, because, uh, frankly, the lawyers, the policy experts, the uh, older generation of activists, uh, we have not succeeded. Um, uh, the, you know, the folks who are out there in the streets, um, many of them, you know, in New York City at least, they remember perfectly well what it was like uh, seven or eight years ago to be thrown up against the wall, be manhandled as somebody stopped and frisked them. They don't, you don't forget things like that. Uh, you don't forget when someone actually puts their hands on you and manhandles you and has the power to do it because they're armed with a gun and a billy club and pepper spray. 
uh, and uh, I think you know that's one reason why, even though you know, the worst um, incidents have not occurred in New York, it's occurred in places like Minnesota and Kentucky. That's why it has resonated so heavily in New York City, and why we have had so many demonstrations here in New York City, uh, because people remember. And I, I, I think that in minority communities, uh, virtually everybody at least has one friend or relative uh, or neighbor who has at one time or another experienced some kind of abuse by police. And uh, you must remember that most of the people who complain are not criminals, and not people who uh, uh, have criminal records. Uh, most of my clients are people who have never been in trouble before in their lives. Uh, and most of the complainants to the Civilian Complaint Review Board are, are those kinds of folks. Uh, and uh, yet they are disregarded the same way the career criminal is disregarded. It's just that, oh, you know, we give the cops the benefit of the doubt. You know, and that's just plain wrong. You know, and, and one thing I, I must uh, mention before we, we run out of time is uh, that in one respect, uh, over the last few months in New York City, things have gotten uh, even worse. Uh, and in that respect is that our latest police commissioner uh, is talking more like the, uh, uh, the union heads than like a commissioner. He has called the demonstrators in the streets a, quote, 1% French lunatics, um, uh, which echoes the very words of one of the union leaders who called them a, quote, vile 1% minority, close quote. Now you can expect that kind of intemperate, uh, vituperative language from the police unions. That's not going to change. But you don't expect it from a commissioner. And uh, yet uh, the commissioner who our mayor appointed only a few months ago uh, is behaving every bit as badly as, uh, as uh, the union leaders. He even uh, uh, was caught on video a couple of weeks ago calling the mayor who appointed him and the city council leadership uh, cowards for enacting very limited reforms like a ban on chokeholds. Uh, our current commissioner is really throwing gasoline on a burning fire. And uh, 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 you know, uh, frankly, you know, if I had my way, I mean, the mayor should say, look, you can't talk to me that way. You can't talk about me and, uh, and the council that way. And so you're, you're gone. Uh, but I know we're, we're running out of time, uh, so before we let you go, um, I just wanted to, to touch on one last um, piece in your article that, that I found to be particularly poignant, um, a story about, a very brief story just about a plaintiff in one of your false arrest cases who, upon being asked what he hoped to gain from the lawsuit, he responded simply, I want justice. Uh, so I'm curious about, you know, what your vision of justice looks like um, in the current system and if, if we were able to implement the recommendations that, that you point to throughout your article. Well, uh, that was a very interesting incident because uh, what that guy was really saying was, I don't care how much money I get out of this lawsuit, that's not why, not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because something should be done about the officers who did this to me. Uh, and uh, I told another story in that same spot in the article about a uh, lovely woman who um, got a very big settlement. She was actually in a wheelchair. Uh, she couldn't have physically done any of the things she was accused of. And she just broke down sobbing when I gave her the settlement check saying it just ain't enough. You know, because a cop who did this is still out there and he's going to do it to someone else again. So, of, of all the reforms uh, that I am uh, advocating, the, the strongest is you've got to get rid of bad police officers. And that means abolishing the trial room, uh, for example, uh, then uh, that, that's what you've got to do. Uh, the, uh, uh, that means abolishing special federal litigation division within the law department and having more sensitive uh, uh, lawyers defend these cases and report 
report on these cases to a more sensitive police commissioner who will actually investigate what this cop did wrong and take action if necessary. Uh, the, most, the, the police department is a paramilitary organization that should be able to, to effectively discipline people who misbehave. Um, just like, you know, in the army, people should be court-martialed you know, court if they misbehave. When you're in a paramilitary organization, there has to be a chain of command and there has to be <clears throat> genuine discipline uh, and punishment for people who violate the rules. Uh, and that is what we need the most. It would be nice to do away with qualified immunity. It would be nice to have the lawsuits more effective. Um, but, you know, until uh, the police department you know, actually really cracks down on people, uh, on bad officers, until the uh, city controller forces them to do so in order to uh, authorize settlements, uh, you know, until the uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board has real power until the decisions of the uh, hearing officers and oath, uh, uh, until the cases come before oath, those decisions should be final. Uh, that's what we need the most. Uh, we need to get rid of the bad cops, and we need to send a message <coughs> to the rest of the police department that you cannot circle the wagons and protect bad cops. Because in the end, it makes your job harder, it makes you unpopular, it's why people in the community hate you, even if you personally are a good officer who doesn't do bad things. Uh, that is the single most important thing. We have got to have a truly effective system that weeds out officers who abuse their power. Well, thank you so much, Attorney Berger. Uh, I think in this moment, um, and especially with this conversation sort of on everyone's mind, we're, we're especially grateful to get to speak with you and get to learn from, from your experience and, and your insight. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for publishing the article. Of course, of course. We're thrilled to, and, and we're thrilled to learn from you. And thank you so much. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your efforts. And it's, it's been wonderful to work with you and, and learn from you. Thank you again to attorney Joel Berger for joining us on the New England Law Review podcast hosted exclusively on our website, The Forum. If you would like more information on attorney Joel Berger, please visit his website at joelbergerlaw.com. Thanks for joining us and until next time, follow us on Twitter at N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V.